0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Charles Lane, columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome, one and all. We are now one month into Vladimir Putin's war of aggression against his neighbor that pretty much everyone thought would be a very short war that would be won by the Russians. And it's not happened that way at all. The latest news today is that the Ukrainians are actually retaking territory from the Russian army and destroying a big Russian ship that the Russians were boasting about having uh, docked and that it was going to be able to provide the Russians all of their uh, needed supplies. And so reality uh, sometimes confounds everyone's expectations. So I want to start, though, with you, Chuck Lane, because President Biden arguably has done some things very well in his handling of this crisis, keeping the alliance together. In the run-up to the war, he skillfully deployed U.S. intelligence assets to sort of thwart any attempt by the Russians to do a false flag operation. So those things were good. He's kept the alliance together. But he's coming under criticism now from a lot of serious people, and uh, I would commend to everyone if they don't already listen – Shield of the Republic is a fantastic podcast. It's another Bulwark podcast, which features Eric Edelman, who will be our guest in coming weeks, and uh, Elliot Cohn. And on their podcast, they were sort of expressing this in very succinct terms. The problem that they see with the way Biden has handled this, and Chuck, I want to hear your response, is that Biden has allowed Putin to use threats and intimidation of escalation to frighten us, and that we have done way too much telling Putin and the world what we will not do, whereas what we should be doing is keeping Putin unsure of what we might do.
1: Well, thanks for having me uh, with the group here, Mona. And um, I have to preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm a little uncomfortable even being asked to critique something uh, that an expert like Elliot Cohen, who's also a good friend of mine, has said, I tend to fall on the somewhat less critical end of the spectrum with respect to President Biden. Look, we could go back a long way, all the way back to the Obama administration, I suppose, to the hesitation to provoke Vladimir Putin by not giving them javelin missiles at that time and I think there was a a slowness in Washington generally, but particularly in the Biden administration to really get it that Putin wasn't kidding when he started arranging these troops around Ukraine and so on and so on. So I have a certain amount of sympathy for the idea that there's more we could be doing and we should not be self-deterring. But when you look at the big picture, I'm more impressed by what we're doing right than what we're not doing right, I think. It's no small thing, no one imagined that this level of alliance unity, particularly involving the Germans, would occur. No one imagined that our previous training, which Biden had been supervising quietly of the Ukrainian forces to use this weaponry, would pay off so handsomely. And, you know, on the other side of the ledger, risking World War III, risking a nuclear exchange, when you don't absolutely have to, you know, I think that's something to be considered. And so I guess my preferred outcome from this would be that Putin beats himself with the help of the Ukrainians, so to speak, and that we help the Ukrainians help Putin beat himself. Now that may or may not happen. But I, I do agree that perhaps we shouldn't maybe have ruled out troops so explicitly right off the bat, and our president has a way of stumbling over his words, such as today when he said we would respond in kind to a chemical attack, and I'm not sure that's what he meant.
0: That might have been okay, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A month out, I find myself surprisingly satisfied, you know, in the scheme of things with how the administration is handling this.
0: Okay, Linda, let's pick up on Chuck's point, because you can make the case that Because of the signals that the West in general and the U.S. in particular have been sending to Putin since 2008, we really need to change our message in no uncertain terms. Because arguably, we have given him the impression that he can really do a lot of aggression without cost. Uh, What do you think about that?
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's not exactly analogous, but let's say you're dealing with a schoolyard bully who's been threatening to take your lunch money. One of the things you don't want to do is to telegraph what your moves might be to evade uh, running into the bully But the other thing you don't want to do is say, now, if you take my money, I'm not going to report you to the principal or I'm not going to call the police or I'm not going to give you a good punch in the nose. You don't want to say what you're not going to do because that just will egg that person on. And I think what Vladimir Putin has learned over the course of various administrations going back at least till 2008 with his move against Georgia is that he pretty much can get away with it. And yes, we might throw a few sanctions at him, but he manages to survive all of those sanctions. Now, this time, I think President Biden has been effective in doing much more than any of the previous presidents have in meeting Putin's aggression. But I think that he has been wrong to be so definitive in what we were not going to do. I mean, it wasn't just that we're not going to put American troops on the ground to fight Russian forces. It's also we're never under any circumstances going to have a no-fly zone. And I've said ad nauseum on this program. I'm not sure that that's going to hold up and is going to stand if we have the kind of humanitarian crisis get worse, with one that we're already seeing, but one where people are literally starving in places like Mariupol and other places uh, within Ukraine. So I don't think he gets high marks for that. But as Chuck suggested, he gets really good marks for what he has done in terms of uniting NATO and uniting our allies' response so that we are all walking in lockstep. And what's been sort of interesting the last few days, it has been some of those NATO allies who at least quietly are saying, don't telegraph what we're not going to do. Well, actually,
0: apropos of that, I have a quotation right here from Marco Mickelson, who is the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Estonian Parliament. And he said, I don't think this is very productive when we say every so often we don't want World War Three or we don't want conflict with Russia. That's a green light to
2: the Russians that we're afraid of them. That is exactly right. And good for them. So, you know, we have seen a stiffening of the spine. I am just so pleased that the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has been so good in terms of uh, saying that Germany is going to double its defense spending. He's not a Christian Democrat like Angela Merkel. Uh, He's a social Democrat, and I would not have expected this coming from a left of center party.
0: Even the Greens in Germany. Even the Greens,
2: right? (laughs) Yes.
0: All right. Damon, somebody listening to the conversation thus far might think, Well, boy, you guys are being a little casual about the uh, possibility of World War III, which would inflict far more human suffering than even we're seeing now in Ukraine. So let me um, sketch out something that a Professor Stephen Peter Rosen said in The Bulwark this week, talking about the risk of nuclear war. He wrote, A small risk of a nuclear war that kills millions may well be unacceptable to us and our allies. We may decide it is, but we should do so with an understanding of what will follow. Putin and Putinism will be understood to be victorious. If one nuclear-armed nation can commit clear acts of international aggression against a non-nuclear nation and then... Shut down military responses by using nuclear weapons, and I would just add parenthetically, or threatening to, in a limited manner, other nations with aggression in mind will surely take note. So he says a world in which either the use or the threat of the use of nuclear weapons is a more dangerous world, a much more dangerous world than we're currently living in. What do you think?
3: Well, I think it's important uh, as usual, but especially in this case, to make some fine grained distinctions here. If we're talking about strategic nuclear weapons, ICPMs, the kind of proverbial 1980s nightmare scenario from the day after and other pop culture things all the way back to the 50s with students hiding under their desks. The notion of within an hour's time of miscalculations and overreactions, the entire world goes up in flames. That is a true still, thank God, outlier scenario that does have to frame our thinking and the thinking of people like Joe Biden and the other world leaders when they think of how to respond to Putin because he's one of a few nations on the planet who does have the resources to uh, participate in that kind of an escalation. So that has to be a kind of outer bound of worst case scenarios that affect how we respond to various events to try to avoid that worst case scenario. That's very different than the other scenario that is being bandied about. I think more realistically is the possibility that Putin realizes his conventional forces are not going to do this for him, that if he leaves clearly and undeniably defeated from Ukraine. He will be finished. There will be a coup. He will be deposed. He will probably not survive. In that kind of a trapped into the corner scenario for him, the question arises, would he use tactical nuclear weapons, smaller yield nukes, usually smaller even than Hiroshima and Nagasaki sized atomic weapons that are designed to be used on a battlefield against enemy army or in encampments uh, on the ground. And that would in itself be an enormous escalation because no country has ever done this other than Hiroshima and Nagasaki used by the United States to end World War II with Japan. So, In that scenario, I think the calculus has to be different. If I don't think he will, I think it's still probably a, I don't know, I'll guess, 10% chance he would do something that rash. But if Putin were to do that, to either use tactical battlefield nukes against the Ukrainian city or military battalions on the ground, then I do think we're in an extremely dangerous situation where we absolutely do have to respond and to uh, quote our president, perhaps in kind. And, you know, I'm not going to try to specify exactly what that means, but precisely from that quote that you read before I spoke— We cannot be in a world in which any country that possesses such weapons can freeze all other countries from responding simply by using those weapons on the battlefield. So if Putin does that, we must respond in a way that makes absolutely clear to him that we will not be bullied by such acts because... The alternative scenario for the future of world order is catastrophic, frankly. Then you really want to see an arms race for tactical nukes? Then we have it. Every country in the world will think that they have an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card to do anything they want on the assumption that opponents will simply bow down and let them get away with it. So,
0: Right. So let me just push you a little bit, though, on that point and ask, so... You say if he uses it, we have to respond, but how do we deter him from using it? That's the question. How do we signal that this is a line he dare not cross? And and how do we frighten him?
3: Well, I mean, part of that relates to something that came to mind before you got to me in the roundabout here on the podcast, having to do with why... Biden keeps telegraphing what we won't do. And I'm kind of sympathetic to that criticism of him. Like Chuck Lane, I generally think Biden has done a pretty good job in a very difficult situation, all things considered. But one place where I also have occasionally raised an eyebrow is, well, do you need to announce beforehand what we won't do? rather than kind of using strategic ambiguity and threats to hope that we can actually try to uh, do a little bit more to uh, get him to make different calculations about what to do in the future. And I think the best case that can be made for Biden and his telegraphing that we're not going to send troops, we're not going to do a no-fly zone, is that usually he pairs it with a very strong defense of Article 5 in NATO. In other words, saying, no, we're not going to go to war with you so far over what you have done, but if anything, if even one acre of NATO ground is encroached upon by a Russian soldier or a bomb or a drone that goes haywire and crashes into Poland or one of the Baltic states— then we will respond absolutely and forcefully. That exact logic has to be, I think, what Biden needs to begin to do. He needs to expand that beyond Article 5 and NATO to say, if you use tactical nuclear weapons in this conflict we will respond in kind and in that way i was actually slightly cheered to hear him say it i don't know if it should apply to chemical weapons and it certainly wouldn't mean that we would therefore like use chemical weapons against russian troops i think that's unlikely but if it's a tactical nuke it might be that we have to maybe not do it ourselves but hand off a couple to Ukraine and have them let Putin know. In that kind of a situation, I think we want the opposite of strategic ambiguity. We need to make absolutely clear to Putin that if you do this, you will be facing a mirror image of the same thing coming right at you. You are not free to do this.
0: Okay, thank you. Bill. Let me know if you agree or disagree with anything that's already been said. And then I want to ask you about a column you wrote this week. And uh, I think I disagree with it, but it's possible I misunderstood it. So (laughs) tell us about anything you wanted to comment on what's so far been said, and then we'll get to your piece.
4: No, uh, because
0: I agree with everything
4: that Chuck began by saying. That is my position as well. And to the extent that anyone disagrees with Chuck's position, they disagree with mine as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So in this piece that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal, you said that you envisioned that this is the moment for a big confab of European nations to settle long postponed issues arising out of the post-Cold War world and you posit, is it possible that NATO could officially withdraw its long term offer of membership to Ukraine and Georgia in return for Russia's formal acceptance of NATO's expansion into Central Europe and the Baltic states? Uh, that made me question. I mean, look, uh, what good would Russia's guarantee be? They've made all kinds of guarantees to Ukraine. They promised. Uh, that Ukraine was free of aggression when it gave up its nuclear weapons in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, They've made all kinds of promises that they've flagrantly uh, disregarded. In that article,
4: I began with a very simple and stark question. How does this war end? All wars end. How does this one end? And I worked through a number of different scenarios. If the argument is at this point that there is no negotiating with Russia because Russia's word is no good, then it's not clear to me where that leaves us. So I think that there is some merit to the idea, assuming we could ever get this far, and I'm not confident we could, of trying to reach the kinds of arrangements after a war that we succeeded in reaching after the second world war, but not after the first. I don't think anybody wants a situation in Europe where everything is up for grabs. Nothing should be done about Ukraine without the consent of the Ukrainians. That's a B we should put no pressure on the Ukrainians to do something that they don't want to do, but C As has been widely reported, President Zelensky himself is recognizing as a political realist as well as an idealist that for the foreseeable future, Ukraine's membership in NATO is off the table. And the question of what he could get in return for formally renouncing that aspiration is, I think, a question worth asking. So I'll just stop there because I don't think I'm persuading you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Um, (laughs) Chuck, I'm going to come back to you for one more question. So Anne Applebaum has written this week that um, Ukraine just has to win, that without a Ukrainian victory, we will be living in a much more dangerous world. Just consider a couple of facts. So Russia committed 190,000 troops to this invasion, and according to NATO, it has lost as many as 40,000 of them, either killed in action, injured, captured, or deserted. In fact, according to Shield of the Republic, there are so many Russian POWs that the Ukrainians are having to manage that it risks slowing down their military operations, just handling all their POWs. So... When you have that many casualties, when you have that many logistical problems, apparently they are dealing on open phone lines, which has allowed at least one of their generals to get killed. They've had the loss of several generals. Things are not going well for the Russians, and Anne argues, and others have argued, that what we need to be doing is full out, giving them every possible weapon we can as fast as we possibly can. Because the best outcome, not just for the Ukrainians, but for Europe and for the whole world, is a Ukrainian victory.
1: Well, I think the problem with that argument, and again, I'm loath to disagree with somebody as uh, expert and distinguished as Anne, is the word victory. I think we want Ukrainian success, but I don't think that's the same thing as Ukrainian victory. And why do I say that? Because you can't have a Ukrainian victory unless Putin agrees to it in a way, admits it, so to speak. Ukraine isn't going to roll up the Russian army and continue on marching into Moscow. That's not going to happen. The most, I guess, we could picture happening is that Ukraine succeeds in expelling all the Russian troops from its own territory. But even then, if Putin says, "Okay, for the time being, you have the upper hand, but I'm going to regroup and come back, it's not a victory. You see what I mean? And I think the problem with Anne's argument is how do we define a victory? And in my mind, I think the center of gravity, so to speak, of this conflict is the the, the power in the Kremlin. Is you know, does a does a regime like this, with this kind of aggressive, disruptive, world-changing ambitions survive or not? Um, in other words, I think it's entirely possible that Ukraine could achieve its territorial integrity on the battlefield without a victory in the sense of eliminating the threat that is represented by the Putin regime, and that's why I'm a little hesitant to to embrace 100% what Anne said because I do think, of course, it's important that Putin not succeed. But I think it's it's hard to define a victory in which he that he acknowledges, admits and capitulates to the way, say, Japan did in 1945.
0: Or the USSR did when it pulled out of Afghanistan.
1: Exactly. And I think that was a different for the, a lot of reasons that that defeat for the Soviet Union in Afghanistan was something that led to a regime change over the next couple of years or contributed to one in a way that I'm not sure that this would have to also do for it to be truly considered a
0: victory. (laughs) We can pray. All right, Bill, you wanted to make another comment.
4: Yeah, and on Anne's article, I think she's absolutely right that within the limits of prudence, we should send the Ukrainians everything we can as fast as we can. And my one note of criticism of, of the Biden administration so far has been its refusal to send the planes, right. uh, which is based on something that sounds more like a legal distinction than a military consideration. We should give the Ukrainians, as I said, everything we can as fast as we can and then see what happens. It is not clear to me that even if we do that, the Ukrainians will be able to to expel russians from their territory and here i i want to call everybody's attention specifically to the land bridge that russian forces have all but established from crimea to russia itself they're there i don't think the ukrainians with maximally well armed are going to be able to expel them Uh, And I don't think that Mr. Putin is going to march his troops out, at least not without events occurring that haven't yet occurred and, in my judgment, are unlikely to occur. So I do think we have to be both ambitious and realistic, and I'm not sure that the call of victory or death uh, for Ukraine is exactly the right note
0: at this point. I have one little crotchet that I need to get off my chest, which is that the Russians engage in this endless propaganda about Nazis. And of course, the idea that Ukraine is governed by Nazis, everyone has made this point is ridiculous. I mean, the president is Jewish, the defense minister is Jewish, etc. Okay, fine. But it's not just that. It's that the Russians, yeah, they did fight very fiercely against the Nazis in World War II. Uh, and they took terrible losses. Right. But- The Hitler-Stalin Pact of 1939 made that war possible. Nazi Germany and the USSR together carved up Poland between them. Stalin was Hitler's enabler until he became one of his targets a couple of years later. So fine, you do get credit for helping to defeat the Nazis, but spare us your moral uh, high horse. Okay, let us now take a break. At this time of high inflation, it's important to keep your budget and financial goals top of mind. Think about the things you could do today to come out ahead, like refinancing your mortgage. If it's not on your to-do list, it should be, because you could be paying a lot less for your home right now. And I know just the people to help. American Financing, a family-owned mortgage lender that's known for its custom home loans and its no-pressure approach to lending. From lower rates to shorter terms, even debt consolidation, they do whatever it takes to help you save up to $1,000 a month, plus tens of thousands over the long term. And if you start soon, you could skip up to two payments and may close in as fast as 10 days. Call 888-961-4143. That's 888-961-4143. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net and tell them Mona sent you. NMLS 182-334, NMLS org. This week we had confirmation hearings for Katanji Brown-Jackson. And on the first day of the hearings, the Republicans said and boasted, really, that they were going to be respectful, that they were not going to treat the Democrats nominee the way Democrats had treated the last but one Republican nominee, namely Brett Kavanaugh. And then they proceeded to do almost the same thing. So let's start with you, Linda Chavez. Lindsey Graham, who isn't running for anything, a bunch of them are, Uh, a bunch of the people on this committee are running for something. But Lindsey Graham, demanded to know of the nominee, which faith are you, by the way, on a scale of one to 10? How faithful would you say you are in terms of religion? You know, I go to church probably three times a year, so that speaks poorly of me. Or do you attend church regularly?
2: (laughs) It was quite appalling. In fact, Lindsey Graham's whole performance this week has been a sad commentary on what has happened to the Republican Party. I will probably not agree with most of Gitanji Brown-Jackson's opinions, should she actually make it through, and I think she will, onto the Supreme Court. But I was so impressed with the way she handled, not just Lindsey Graham, but Ted Cruz was probably the worst. But they were all pretty bad. I mean, it was really disrespectful, If you want to know what proper judicial temperament looks like, it looks like Katanji Brown Jackson. She was just really composed. She didn't lose her temper. She answered questions, even questions that made no sense. I mean, she was badgered on the question of critical race theory. And Mona, you know, I'm a big critic of critical race theory. I've written about it. I've been an opponent of it. I've debated the subject. But there's no indication whatsoever that Judge Jackson has ever used critical race theory in her judicial philosophy and in the way in which she judges cases. She was just terrific. And she also expressed a love of America Mm -hmm. that was so refreshing. I mean, she really made me feel proud as she described Growing up, being born and growing up in the post-civil rights era, being the beneficiary of all of the changes, the remarkable changes that have taken place. So to see somebody like Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz, or even Senator Cornyn, who is a little more respectful uh, than some of the others, but the way in which they hammered this woman, the way in which Josh Hawley tried to take her to task for a child porn decision which when you actually read the case itself, when you actually read what happened in that case, the fact that uh, she gave someone who was a high school student jail time for having downloaded uh, child porn onto his computer. This was, by the way, a child who lived in a very Christian family and who was gay and was... Very, very ashamed of what he had done. But they acted as if somehow she'd given him some sort of reward for his behavior. She put him in jail. Now, granted, it wasn't two years. It was uh, three months, as I recall. But they were just awful. And, And
0: by the way, they also conflated, Holly did, he conflated people who downloaded child porn pictures with people who molest children.
2: Right, absolutely. <laughs> now, look, I have no truck with no, people no, who I download agree. child but porn. But there is a difference. There is a difference. And what was really shocking about it, and it never occurred to me as I was listening to the question, but I did see articles about it later, was that it played into this whole QAnon conspiracy about Democrats who are pedophiles. I mean, I kept yeah. wondering, why are they focused on yep. the, Why do they keep talking about this? And then suddenly, oh, they're talking to their QAnon voters. Yeah, It was disgraceful. It just
0: embarrassed me. Bill Galston, something Linda said, you know, really resonated with me, which is, look, I'm sure I will disagree with most of this future justice's rulings. I think she's probably far to the left of where I am on most issues. That's what I gather. But my goodness, she has a sterling record. She seems to be a wonderful person. She has great personal dignity. And to watch these Republican senators treat her so disrespectfully, I mean, it offended me, and I'm a conservative. What do you think it's doing to other viewers if they're watching? Nothing good. Uh, <laughs> as she was
4: interrupted time after time, I'm sure there were very good reasons for her to hold her tongue, but I'm sure she must have been tempted at some point to say very quietly but firmly, Senator, I don't know how you were raised, but I know my parents raised me. Not to interrupt people, <laughs> but to wait until they were done expressing their thoughts so that you could respond appropriately. You know, I think it took a lot more self-restraint than I would have had in those circumstances. But let me just make the two obvious points. You have at least four people, four Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who look at the mirror in the morning and see a potential president or at least vice president, staring back. So what's really interesting about their performance, which is part of running for national office in today's Republican Party, is what they decided to focus on as the best way of promoting their prospects. I think that speaks volumes for the centrality of the social issues in today's Republican Party and the very sharp cleavages uh, between Republicans and Democrats on that point. In previous decades, you could imagine really tough questions. There were only a few about, for example, the non-delegation doctrine, the role of government in the economy, the restraints or lack of restraints on presidential executive power in time of war, Those considerations were conspicuous by their near absence. Instead, you had children's books being displayed, like Uh they were legal exhibits. I mean, it was an X-ray of where we are. The Republican Party gins up for the midterms and then for the presidential election. And it was, from that standpoint, even more discouraging than I had imagined.
0: Yeah. It's worth noting that Ted Cruz had these props, these pictures from the book that she's on the board of one of the private schools in DC that apparently teaches Ibram Kendi's theories you know, to little kids. And so he was challenging her and saying, do you want little kids learning this? And the fact is, uh, Dana Milbank had a piece about that. <laughs> he sends his uh, Ted Cruz sends his children to a private school that does the exact same What's thing. What's
4: that? That's That's
0: cool. Cool. Just wonderful. There were one or two interesting things that did come out of it, despite all the circus. So one is that she did say that she would recuse herself from the affirmative action case involving Harvard next term, if she's confirmed, because she serves on the board and has done. So that was good because there's a too little recusal arguably <laughs> at the Supreme Court. So that was good and also it removed another thing that they could harp on. But I was struck by the fact that she when asked about how she judges constitutional and statutory matters, she was a textualist. She sounded just like Antonin Scalia. Did you notice that? <laughs> well,
1: I didn't think she sounded just like uh, Antonin Scalia. (laughs) I heard her acknowledging, in effect, that textualism and originalism have had a lasting, they're sort of here to stay in the way the court decides cases. And that is arguably a legacy of Justice Scalia. And I think if you've been following these things a little bit, as I have tried to do, you will understand that that's not an entirely surprising to hear that from a justice or judge at this point coming from the uh, lefter regions of the political spectrum, because there's been sort of a rediscovery of originalism as a method by progressives in certain contexts to argue that actually the original meaning of the 14th Amendment would lead you to different conclusions about Equal rights, you know, it gets into the weeds a little bit and the incorporation doctrine and things like that. But I think what it shows you is that basically what President Biden has done here is present this committee with a judge who kind of knows her way around the law, is perfectly qualified for the Supreme Court, is familiar with the big issues, you know, is not like a firebrand of any kind, really, but it's just kind of been working her way through these cases and I must say just a slightly different tack. I thought what was also interesting was the the, the theme of this hearing about the defense of unpopular defendants, mm-hmm. which, which she really defended herself on. Yeah. And I thought that was a very important theme. You know, it, she has been a defense lawyer and she did amicus briefs for some of the Guantanamo prisoners and they tried to make it sound like she was sympathetic with terrorism, which frankly I thought was even more scurrilous than yeah. some of the things that you're Referring to. And I think it was a good little seminar uh, for the country, you know, on the value of the apolitical professional duty of an attorney and a lawyer to stick up for somebody who is unpopular and is in trouble with the law.
0: Yep. John Adams defended the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre. So everybody deserves a defense. Okay. So maybe my favorite moment of the hearing though I mean, I there were many actually, I thought she was really very winsome, I have to say, and I liked her daughters and her husband and her parents, I mean, you know the story of her father, who had been raised you know before the era of the civil rights revolution and uh, was getting a law degree when she was a little girl, and they were sitting at the kitchen table, he with his law books, and she with her coloring books that was that was really touching anyway. But my favorite moment came from Ben Sass, <laughs> where they were discussing whether there should be cameras in the Supreme Court, uh, which will be decided, of course, by the Supreme Court, not by the Senate. But he was recommending against it, Ben Sass was, and in the course of doing so, he said, quote, sitting, by the way, sitting right next to Ted Cruz, he said, We should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here is partly because of people mugging for short term camera opportunities, unquote. Damon.
3: Well, th- th- this shows how well we all know each other on this podcast now, because I was sitting here with my notes waiting for my turn, and I have Ben Sass written, hoping <laughs> no one else would mention Ben Sass. And here you cue me right up there.
0: Okay. Uh, very
3: nicely done. Yes, I think Judge Jackson, I think, presented herself very well. It was a great American moment, uh, having her and her family and her story uh, there before the country. And then other, the other thing, things that we've all been talking about, you know, the kind of eye-rolling character of a lot of the Republican questioning, you know, not very edifying, but by the same token, that's also a snapshot of America. A lot of the trends in it that this podcast isn't too fond of were on display, and I appreciated Ben Sasse's bipartisan if you can say that, a statement about the source of some of it, which is that, of course, you know, uh, others have mentioned that Josh Hawley's uh, insistence on talking about uh, child pornography and Judge Jackson being soft on that. I mean, that was, in some ways, it was a perfect coincidence. It was like lined up for a Republican because you get to accuse or insinuate that she is both soft on crime and kind of pro child porn or something like this. <laughs> and like you know wow that's like a perfect uh, it's like you hit a home run there. But of course the other dimension to it is what sass brought in which is that all of this is about the fact that uh the right in this country has this kind of media ecosystem that they swim in where when Sass said that line about the jackassery, that was right after Cruz had just been on one of his tirades that, of course, was perfectly concocted to, you know, be a soundbite on Hannity that evening on Fox. I mean, that's why he does that. There was a kind of a, a viral photo going around online afterwards uh, of a picture a journalist took over Cruz's shoulder and he's looking at his cell phone scrolling through Twitter from mentions of Himself, of Of course, course. because that's what this is all about. This is I'm going to sit up here and do a kind of demagogic act of grandstanding in the hope that it gets picked up and it goes viral and I get lots of applause from my constituents and lots of donations to my reelection campaign. And that's the way we do business these days. So I appreciated Sass, especially right after one of his fellow senators had been engaging in this for him to, you know, have the the guts to to call it out uh in his own party,
0: we should add, yes, his own
3: party uh yeah. you know it, it's not quite Mitt Romney voting to uh convict the sitting president of his own party in an impeachment It's not quite to that level of courage, but it's a it's a little it was a little moment where. He was acknowledging, yeah, this whole thing's a little screwed up here, the way we do this. Um, and really, I mean, let's be honest. At this point, these hearings—the ex- hearings exist in the first place because of television. And then we're now to the point where really they just have boiled down to an opportunity for the out party, the party that isn't nominating the justice, to, to grandstand and do exactly what I was saying, to kind of display before uh, their voters and the world uh, you know, where I stand and what I care about. And as Bill noted, it's about social issues, cultural issues trying to score points over critical race theory and gender and things like that. And we all know that, you know, as long as everyone stays alive for the next few weeks, she's going to pass with very few, if any, votes from the other side. And on we go with the, (laughs) the edifying display of America. Exactly.
0: Well said. Chuck, I'm going to give you the last word here. (laughs) You know, it doesn't speak well for democracy, which as we know is the, Worst form of government except for all the others. But the fact is the cameras do bring out the worst in people. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Brian Lamb is a friend of mine. I love him. I think C SPAN did lots of great public service, but it also contributed to the dumbing down of what the Congress does. Matt Iglesias talks about the secret Congress, you know, that the things that are done sort of behind the scenes without any publicity are done smoothly, efficiently, in a bipartisan fashion. The uh, Intelligence Committee, which is behind closed doors, is very, you know, congenial and so forth. It's the. It's when they're in front of the people uh, when they, the, it brings out the worst in them. So do you have any observations about that?
1: Well, I've, I've actually gone a couple of times maybe in my column on record as being one of the few people in the media who is not in favor of cameras at the Supreme Court. Me too. For some of the reasons that I think the others on today's podcast have been suggesting, the grandstanding and so forth is a big problem. But my bigger picture objection goes something like this you know, transparency and publicity and openness and live availability to the public, you know, kind of makes sense in a political branch like Congress, you Mm -hmm. know, that it's about politics. So have at it. The judiciary is at least not supposed to be political. Um, And so the, the considerations are different. It is supposed to be a cooler, more judicious, more reflective, process. Mm -hmm. And by bringing the Twitterati and the global mob in to kind of take part as spectators, you destroy that atmosphere. And I would also say there has never been enough attention paid to a very important distinction between cameras in the courtroom and live cameras in the courtroom. And I've always felt there should be cameras at the Supreme Court, For historical purposes, right, to keep a video record of the arguments, they have an audio record now, and then, you know, after 10 or 15 years or some period, uh, you know, make those available to people. But for there to be live television in the Supreme Court would take, I think, an institution that's already dangerously politicized and just make it worse.
0: Well said. We now come to the last segment, the highlight or low light of the week. Linda
2: Chavez. Well, I'm going to go with a low light. It's really not an article that I want people to read, but it is a story about which there were articles uh, today uh, and yesterday uh, in the newspaper. And that is the story of the resignation uh, from the investigation into Donald Trump's finances. Of the veteran prosecutor uh, Mark Pomerantz, who last month sent in a letter of resignation, uh, along with Carrie Dunn, who was one of the top investigators on the team that was probing the Trump family, uh, and at the time there was some question: Well, why, you know, was he? Uh, resigning uh, we had a sense that he didn't believe that uh, district attorney the new district attorney in uh, in New York Alvin Bragg was going to uh, pursue the case well now apparently the the letter of resignation has leaked and in it Pomerantz makes a very strong case that he believed absolutely Donald Trump broke the law that he committed quote, numerous felony violations. And uh, I, I think this is, you know, an, an important story because what Donald Trump seems to have succeeded in doing once again is getting away, uh, in this case, not shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue in, in plain sight. But basically breaking all of the normal business laws that say when you submit documents for loans, when you represent uh, your company's finances, that you do so in good faith and that you don't lie. And had Donald Trump actually been indicted? If he were facing prosecution for having committed these felonies, I think it would be a very different story about whether or not he is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. So I think this was an important story. I think it probably will have been missed by a lot of people because of the much bigger story of Ukraine and also the domestic story of of the uh, confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. But I do want to point it out, and I will put some links into a couple of the articles that have appeared about it.
0: Well, thank you. Of course, the the prosecutor in Manhattan um, is a Democrat, an elected Democrat, so I eagerly await all of the Republicans denouncing him as soft on crime for failing to (laughs) indict Donald Trump. Okay, Chuck Lane.
1: I guess it's a low light. It was certainly a terrible blow to equality, and I have in mind the Taliban's decision this week to go back on its promise to let girls attend secondary school starting Wednesday. They had essentially pledged and, in fact, had announced or repeated their pledge publicly as recently as Monday that as of Wednesday, girls uh, above sixth grade would be allowed back into school, albeit on a segregated by gender basis. And literally, girls went to school and were turned away because the Taliban had changed its mind. I think this is a terrible sign of what the future might look like in Afghanistan. we would all been waiting. It's a crucial consideration for the West in terms of aid and recognition of Afghanistan. And as somebody who, for our editorial page, covered that horrible event last August, I've tried not to lose sight of what's going on over there. And this was a very, very low moment.
0: Yeah. Okay. Bill Galson. Well,
4: I have a highlight, but before I get there, just to drop a footnote to uh, to Chuck's point, uh, it was reported, and the more I thought about it, the more sense it made, uh, that the Taliban, in making that decision or reversing a previous decision, to be more accurate, were worried that if they did allow uh, girls to enter secondary education, that they would lose troops and support to the Islamic State. Hmm. So apparently there's thunder on the Taliban's right <laughs> that they have to pay attention to. Hmm. Who knew? Oh, uh, wow. But my, my highlight is a piece from uh, Chuck's New- newspaper, The Washington Post, by Greg Sargent. Appeared a couple of days ago, And its title was Behind Tucker Carlson and J.D. Vance, A Revolt Against the the GOP Unfolds. And Greg works his way through a number of the leading voices in what's come to be known as the National Conservatism Movement. And I think provides an excellent x-ray of some of the most important themes uh, that the movement is pushing. Uh, I perhaps am singling out this article because I have become preoccupied with this movement. I do think it is an important harbinger of a possible future for conservative populism in the United States, uh, and it has some very interesting as well as deeply troubling
3: features.
0: Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Well,
3: my uh, low light of the week actually segues very nicely from Bill's... uh, own uh, highlight, Um, I actually wrote uh, also uh, this week about uh, that Greg Sargent piece, which was indeed very good. Um, But uh, the reason why it segues well, uh, what I'm going to highlight, or low light I'm going to focus on, is that uh, we're talking about some similarities and overlap. I'm going to be singling out uh, a brand new journal that launched this week titled Compact, This is an interesting development. The kind of post-Trump conservative intellectual right has a number of outlets. Uh, The Claremont Review of Books, uh, another Claremont journal called American Mind, a really trashy, terrible journal called American Greatness, a higher brow and more interesting one called American Affairs, and now there is Compact. Um, This one is unique in that it is a truly, I mean, maybe this is a little tendentious to say this, but it definitely has a red-brown feel to it, uh, Mm -hmm. if people know what this means. What we have as the founding editors are Saurabh Amari, former editorial page editor of uh, the uh, uh, New York Post, who is known as a kind of bad-boy troublemaker on the increasingly far-right, and also Matthew Schmitz, a former editor uh, of First Things magazine, and they are joined with a guy named Edwin Aponte, who is a self-described Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> And then among the contributing editors we have from the right, Christopher Caldwell, who used to work for the Weekly Standard, but has been drifting in the uh, more Claremontian direction uh, over the years and is, uh, I think, further right than uh, than you would have expected, five, say, five years ago. Also Lee Smith, who has become a purveyor of right-wing conspiracy theories. And uh, you have also Adrian Vermule of Harvard Law School, who is a— uh, a Defender of Integralism, meaning a kind of synthesis of church and state. Also Leo Leibovitz, who uh, writes about uh, lots of cultural issues from a pretty far right-wing position, uh, very often for Tablet Magazine, Patrick Deneen as well. And then on the left, you have David Reif, whose name was not here earlier in, in the week, but is is uh, has been added. I'm sad to see uh, him joining this crew. Uh, as well as uh, some British academics uh, and kind of uh, controversial people. A woman named Nina Power, who wrote a piece this week about how the patriarchy is a good thing, uh, kind of from the left, as well as uh, Slavov Zizek, the kind of another bad boy philosopher from Great Britain, usually thought of as on the left, but he's uh, an an oddball out. And then also joined by Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy, who are kind of, uh, all purpose uh, journalistic, anti establishmentarian types. So uh, basically, the one thing uniting all of these people is absolute loathing of liberalism and centrism. In other words, everything that this podcast stands for. So if you ever listeners to this podcast want to get the complete diametric opposite of what you get here, <laughs> I suggest taking a look at Compact Magazine and seeing what they have to offer.
0: There you go. Thank you, Damon. Uh, I think of them all as arsonists, intellectual arsonists.
3: Oh, absolutely. This journal exists to fire heavy artillery at the liberal establishment from any and every direction. And then what will replace it? Ah, Let's see who crops up. Yeah, exactly. It'll be Trump, could be someone else. Uh, well, it doesn't really matter as long as it's not the dreaded centrist liberals.
0: And that sort of nihilistic tone was very much evident in the first Donald Trump rise in 2015 and 2016, where there were a lot of people saying, burn it all down. That was the the mood. Yes, all right. Well, thank you for that. I would like to praise the New York Times for publishing a long editorial called "America Has a Free Speech Problem." They were picking up on a poll that uh, they had uh, they had commissioned um, about free speech, and um, it was it was you know just very solid in many many ways. It talked about uh, you know the number of people um, who think that the that people self-censoring is a problem. Poll found that 84% of adults think it's either a very serious or a somewhat serious problem that Americans don't speak freely in everyday situations out of fear of retaliation or harsh criticism. Um, They also noted um, that 46% of respondents said that they personally had felt less free to talk about politics compared to a decade ago Um, and uh, and so they and then they made this point, which I think is um, is important, because they denounced you know efforts by conservative Republican legislatures around the country to uh, to restrict you know the treatment of issues like CRT and other things, and uh, and they point out and, and they denounce those rightly, but then they say um, in passing laws that restrict speech, conservatives have adopted the language of harm that some liberals used in the past to restrict speech the idea that speech itself can cause an unacceptable harm which has led to a proliferation of campus speech codes and the use of trigger warnings in college classrooms so that's the first time i've seen that kind of like high profile acknowledgement that uh that this you know this has deep roots on the left this intolerance of free speech so I was amused, so I'm applauding it, I think it's important, but uh, I would also just note that some people have said, and this made me smile, that this could be a very public message from the over 50 editors at the New York Times to the under 30 editors at the New York Times, (laughs) as sort of a message saying, look, you're way out there, and so we really want to rein you in. But still, this is a full-throated defense of the value of free speech, one of the most essential virtues of our free and democratic system. And so I applaud them. And Bill, you wanted to add something. I just wanted to drop another footnote. This seems to be (laughs) my
4: podcast for footnotes. (laughs) You know, one of Damon's favorite writers, uh, Matt Iglesias, wrote a column entitled, and I think I can get this right. World's dullest editorial creates a panic. (laughs) (laughs) So what you found solid, he found soporific. Oh, that's funny.
0: With that, I want to thank Chuck Lane for joining us. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong. I want to thank all our listeners. We appreciate it, especially those who comment and rate us and those who comment on Twitter. I've noticed an uptick in the Twitter comments. Thank you. That gets us more listeners, and we very much appreciate it. And we will be back next week as every week.